Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Molly. She has hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. All she wants is to feel like her old self, but instead she's exhausted and foggy. Molly's been on thyroid medicine for over a year, but she hasn't noticed that much of a difference from it. It's still hard to get up in the morning and she's dragging all day. She's not as sharp as she used to be and she just feels blah. When I met Molly and reviewed her labs, I noticed right away that she was not supported for her thyroid type. And even though she's on medicine, her cells weren't getting what they really needed. I knew exactly where we needed to look to solve her health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about all of Molly's struggles, and joining me on the show today to talk much more about this is Dr. Eric Balkovac. He is the host of the Thyroid Answers podcast and the co-author of the recently released book, The Thyroid Debacle. Dr. Eric, I am so excited to have you on. Welcome, welcome. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. Now, you and I definitely speak the same language when it comes to thyroid. We really see eye to eye when looking at thyroid, really from this whole body perspective. And of course, with that also understanding that it's way more than just TSH. And, you know, thyroid hormones have to get properly produced and then converted and then transported and then also absorbed. And so there's quite the story there. Um, and I find that while many people are becoming more and more aware and looking at things like a full thyroid panel and really evaluating what's happening, there is much less talk about the absorption of thyroid hormone and what's really behind it, like what's going on underneath. Because, you know, it's one thing to have enough hormones, uh, whether it's from our own thyroid or from the medication that we're taking, but it's another to actually get that hormone into the cell and get it to do what it needs to do and figure out if that's not happening, what is that underlying reason? So tell us a little bit more about how you look at things and what is happening when the body isn't producing or absorbing enough hormone. Yeah. So I, I think the easiest way to kind of think about the cells in the body is like people. In normal everyday life, my major job is manufacturing. You know, I'm making money, I'm making whatever, I'm making stuff, right? I'm not too busy spending time fighting things. I'm mostly in making money, right? Or helping people or whatever, more manufacturing mode. And our cells live in that kind of same model. They're either in manufacturing mode, making uh, thyroid hormone, making muscle tissue, making sex hormones, making digestive enzymes, making uh, energy out of our food, right? Burning fat. They're in manufacturing mode. And to do that, they need a lot of something called thyroid hormone and not just any thyroid hormone, but the active form of thyroid hormone called T3. Thyroid gland makes primarily T4, makes some T3. It's about a ratio of 10 to one normally, somewhere in that range. The thyroid gland dumps those hormones out into the bloodstream. They get 
bound to what we call a thyroid, a binding globulin. It's like an Uber driver that drives the hormone around the body. And then it, when it gets to tissues that need thyroid hormone, the thyroid hormone gets out of the Uber and becomes free of the binding globulin and then can get into the cell and tissue. What this cell brings in is some T3 from the bloodstream. There's a portion of T3 that comes into the cell. And that T3 that comes right in, if the cell's in manufacturing mode, is going to go right into the nucleus and start to stimulate that machinery. It's going to go into the mitochondria to support the machinery of the mitochondria so we can manufacture, make enzymes and proteins and peptides and all this fantastic good stuff. The other thing that's going to happen is the cell's going to bring, there's this precursor hormone T4 that's also being produced by the thyroid gland in in huge supply. And that's kind of the circulating reserve hormone. And so that hormone gets released from the Uber and can come into the cell. And at that cell, the cell can say, yeah, I I need to even increase that metabolism more. It's going to convert that T4 to T3. And now that T3 can go bind to nuclear and mitochondrial receptors and keep that machinery going. Or if I have a cell that's perceiving stress or danger, then it's going to see the T4 and T3 that's in the bloodstream and say, you know what? I know you got out of the Uber, but you're not coming in here. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to increase the machinery in here. I don't want to increase manufacturing. And in that situation, the cell produces enzymes that can deactivate T4 to something called reverse T3, deactivate T3 to something called T2, and that keeps the metabolism downregulated. Now, Somebody might say, well, why would the cell want to do that? If the cell feels threatened, the cell has a sensor that senses danger, just like the ring doorbell on your house senses somebody's at coming to the house, right? The cell's mitochondria senses a drop in energy. And when there's a drop in energy in the cell, the cell says, hey, that's danger. Slow down manufacturing and ramp up cell defense. We need to protect ourselves from something. And the cell uses the amount of T3 inside the cell as the the thermostat to be able to change that. Most of us think about T3 binding to receptors and turning on processes, but T3 also binds to receptors and turns off some cell processes. So when we have a higher T3 state in the cell that turns on manufacturing, turns down the cell defense, But if we want to turn on cell defense, we need to decrease the amount of T3 that shuts down or slows down manufacturing and now turns on the cell defense mechanisms. And this is why somebody could have a a perfectly functioning thyroid gland, enough T4 and T3 that the gland's making, or they're taking via prescription, but they still don't feel optimal. And it's not because the body forgot how to convert T4 to T3. It's because the body is adaptively not doing that. Hmm. And that is so interesting. I think it's just so important because these are also the people that can have blood work that looks optimal too, right? Like, so there, you know, we talk about functional ranges versus lab ranges, but they can have levels in the functional range but those levels are tested in the blood, right? Not in the cell. So just because you have the hormones in the blood doesn't mean that they are getting into the cell or being used in the cell or used properly in the cell. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest problems in functional medicine is that we've defined these, what we call functional or optimal ranges. And we think just like a medical physician sometimes thinks that they the lab value, as long as it's in the range, it's good. And if it's outside if the value is outside this predetermined range that we've decided that it's not good. And I think that's a mistake. I think labs don't need to be hammered into range. We need to ask questions because you could have a, a lab value, let's say TSH, that's normal, whether you use lab or functional range, right? It's 1.4. And some of you say, well, that's in the optimal range, so you're good. Well, it may be in the normal range, but it might be totally inappropriate for the person who's sitting in front of me. If the person sitting in front of me has no eyebrows, they're overweight, they're tired, fatigued, they're depressed, they got constipation, then the TSH is normal, but it's not appropriate for the person who's sitting in front of me. And that's where an, an astute physician is going to interpret a lab value based on the health history, the signs and symptoms, the other labs, and say, wait a second, I know that is normal and there's no H or L near it, but now I have to understand why that normal value is being is showing up on a person who's clearly has hypothyroid signs and symptoms. Now, somebody might say, well, they're not hypothyroid signs and symptoms because TSH is normal. 
But then I would say, well, we know that inflammation suppresses TSH. It increases the hypothalamic conversion of T4 to T3, therefore lowering TSH. So did maybe that TSH is only a, in that range because inflammation is suppressing the TSH number, right? Or maybe that TSH is only in that number because I overloaded the system with T4, which saturated the hypothalamus and caused it to be low. Yeah, exactly. Right. So we can't just look at values. And we see this as a problem because, and you're, you may want to talk about this too, when people don't, when they have normal TSH and normal free T4 or T4, total T4, but then we look at the reverse T3 and the free T3 and total T3 and see they're low in functional medicine, what often happens is the functional practitioner or integrative practitioner will say that silly medical doctor didn't realize T4 can't convert to T3. This person has an inability to convert T4 to T3. So I'm going to fix it for them by giving them lots of T3. And now see, I've normalized T3. Now the person's better because I hammered that T3 into a certain range and they think they did a better job. And then you say, well, what about TSH? It's no longer optimal. Well, who cares about TSH? Nobody cares about that. I'm only concerned about T3. And that's the wrong process in my opinion too, because you are you just did the same thing with a different drug. You're just greenwashing what the medical practitioner is doing. We have to be better and ask the question, is there a true inability to convert T4 to T3? And if that's the case, how did this person's neurophysiology develop in the first place if they couldn't convert T4 to T3? Because they should have had neurodevelopmental issues. Or is this some type of inflammatory re- response or adaptive response to some type of inflammatory and stress response, which I think is the vast reason why most people have reduced T4 to T3 conversion. And like you said, we don't want to just fix the issue. We want to figure out that underlying reason. I mean, I think in functional medicine, that's always the goal, right? We talk about getting to the root, but what happens is often exactly what you said. We fix it with something more, say, natural or what we think might be natural. But if you're kind of going around and trying to hack something without getting to like what the root is, then like you said, it's essentially doing the same thing. So Let's talk about that root some more because I think this is huge and it's something that affects all of us, right? So this cell danger response that you talk about, you know, essentially this fight or flight, right? I mean, I think most people who listen to the show and listen to your show, right, they understand the term fight or flight um, overall in our body, right? That the body goes into this response that, and it fears, fears something, right. And it goes back to we're either being chased, right. By a lion, a tiger or bear, and we need to either fight or flee, right. Um, and run away. And so there's all of these things that happen in our body where obviously, you know, our blood's going to go to our hands and feet so we can run and fight. And a lot of areas are going to not be supported like our immune system and our gut and everything else. But when this happens on the cellular level, tell us a little bit more about how you see the cell danger response. What does that look like? And then, of course, where does that come from? What that cell danger response is going to look like on each individual depends on how long it's going on, the tissues and the systems that are impacted. But we can see patterns in, in labs and we can see signs and symptoms. And almost everybody's experienced some level of a cell danger response in their time frame. So anytime somebody's like, I don't know if that's me or I don't know if I've ever experienced that, I'm like, have you ever had a cold? Yeah. Did you ever feel lousy? Did you feel depressed? Did you feel sad, not hungry, tired, fatigued? Yeah. Yeah. That was a cell danger response, right? But it was temporary and it went away. But for a lot of people, that cell danger response doesn't go away, and it becomes more chronic in a new operating system. And so what does that look like from a cellular perspective? This could be the person who's gaining weight for no apparent reason, even though they're eating a calorie-balanced diet. This could be the person who has glucose resistance, or as other people like to call it, insulin resistance. And um, their doctor saying, you need to eat, you're eating too much and not exercising enough, and, but the doctor never took the time to see that they're on a very low-carb High, good protein, fat balanced diet. So it's not that, that's not it either. And so the glu- person with glucose resistance, a person who has hormone dysregulation, a person who has decreased 
parasympathetic systems, like their stomach acid reduction is reduced. They don't have good bile flow. They can't detox well. They don't digest and break their food down well. They're constipated or even loose stools. They have insomnia, anxiousness, irritability, disrupted sleep patterns. It looks like the person who might have some chronic symptoms. And sometimes we have a cell stress response going on and we don't really know it for a while. That happened to me it happens to others, but I was had a lot of stress on the system. I didn't really think of it as stress when I was younger, training for triathlons, working, parenting, coaching, doing all those things, only needing four hours of sleep a night. And you do that for decade after decade after decade. The lo- you get this load, 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 and all of a sudden the body's like, whoa, we're not, we don't have enough energy here to do all the things that need to be done. We need to start shutting things down and kind of ramping up the inflammatory system because the body is sensing danger, but it doesn't know what it is. But at a cell level, it looks at like somebody who's got multiple issues and we call it lots of different things. Adrenal Adrenal insufficiency, adrenal fatigue, you have depression, you have anxiety, you have whatever. That is the effect of an extended cell stress or cell danger response. Now, the second part I think you asked is what causes it? Yeah. It would be nice if it's the sexy thing we all promote on Instagram and blogs and and podcasts, right? Which is it's Epstein-Barr, it's H. pylori, it's Klebsiella, it's this one thing that does it. And that's attractive. It's flashy, right? People get, oh, maybe I have heavy metal toxicity, right? Maybe it's mold. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's one thing for some people, or maybe there's a a thing that causes that cell danger response. But I don't think it's usually a thing. I think it's more the load. So how I typically I describe my book and when I do in like presentations or even this is. For the person who's listening, imagine you had two cinder blocks standing on end and we put a a two by six on top of there and think of the stress of your life like five pound weights that were going to stick on that plank, on that board. And as we go through life, we keep stacking five pound weights on it. And let's say the capacity of the board is a hundred pounds. At some point, even if I haven't had this acute major stress in my life, if I'm adding and adding five pound weights day after day, year after year, at some point, I'm going to exceed the capacity of the board and the board's going to break. And that's what happens to it at the cellular level is sometimes we just have cumulative stress with poor recovery, cumulative stress with poor recovery, cumulative stress with poor recovery, which would happen to me. I did a lot of things right, but decreased sleep, poor breathing, a lot of life stress, Without recovery, and that's healthy, quality sleep is part of that recovery, and eventually that breaks down. For other people, it could be a big thing. Let's say they're going through life and they've got they've placed 50 pounds of stress weights on that board, and it's still manageable. This isn't a problem, but along comes the divorce. And that would be like dropping 25 pounds from 20 feet in the air, and now this quick 25 pound weight dropping with that velocity still breaks the board, right? And now we're into cell danger response. And somebody could say, yeah, but I got divorced. It's gone. Yes. But your board is still broken. You're still operating from adaptation. And so part of our role in functional medicine is to help you identify the stressors that are still there the ones that may have come and gone, but help your, your, your cells and tissues say, okay, what stressors are still here that I can reduce or remove so that I can lighten that stress response and support the recovery? Because as long as you're in stress response, you can't heal and repair appropriately. I was just at a conference in Fort Worth this past weekend. I said to one of the, one of the people in the audience, I'm like, let's say you had a big party going on this weekend and you are cooking, you're cleaning, you're feeding your kids, right? And they're sitting at your kitchen island. You got four burners on, everything's going on. And somebody comes in and starts attacking your child. Are you going to continue to cook? Are you going to continue to clean? Are you going to continue to do wash and vacuum and do all the stuff? Or are you going to ignore all of that stuff and protect your child? They said, obviously, I'm going to protect my child, right? That's the major, that's the stressor, right? 
And so we see the burning food, the vacuum cleaner on in the middle of the floor, the wash all over the place, and assume that all of that is broken physiology. And it's not. It's being ignored to some degree because it's not important in the moment. And for most of the people, that's what's happening in a cell stress response. They're trying to find out what the name of the thing they have is. Do I have adrenal fatigue? Do I have hypothyroidism? Do I have Hashimoto's? Do I have reflux? Do I, what, do I have irritable bowel syndrome? What do I have? I'm like, Kelly and I, in the book, we came up with the term and I, cause I've been using that with my clients cause they want to know what the thing is that they can manipulate or fix. I'm like, what you have is a multi-system adaptive disorder. Yeah. Well, no, I have adrenal fatigue. Absolutely, you're going to have your adrenals aren't going to work. If you have chronic stress response, there's a reason your your adrenals are changing in how they work. There's a reason. No, no, no. I was told I have mitochondrial dysfunction. No, no. You have absolutely your mitochondria is downregulated in that chronic stress response. And if you want to talk about the chemistry or why that happens, I'm more than happy to do it. But we see these things we call broken and we try and fix them by just throwing supplements at them when that's not going to make a difference. If you made me the best gourmet dinner and put it in front of me, but I had somebody stabbing me with a knife, I'm not eating your dinner. It doesn't matter how good it is. It's not important in the moment. Yeah. And you know, I think what you're saying too about all of the different triggers that we talk about, right? With hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's even specifically where it's, you know, the H. pylori and the Epstein-Barr and the, um, Klebsiella, right? And Yersinia and yeast and molds and metals and all of that. And of course, they're all important. But as you're saying, it's yes, we want to figure out what those are and lessen that load. But the question then is once those are gone, and of course, it's not like we can get rid of every possible infection in the body anyway, right? Our immune system is going to take over. So we do what we can to lessen that load. But it's then switching it off, right? Because once the load is lower, just because it's lower doesn't mean that the cell's going to just switch off that response if it's stuck in that I am in fear, right? I'm in this high cortisol state. So it sounds like that's where the work really comes in, right? Absolutely. I mean, and you think about that, like if somebody broke into your house and attacked your child and you fought off that attacker and the police came and arrested them, are you going to go back to normal tomorrow? Right. It'd probably take you weeks or months to be convinced that the stress is gone, right? So you'd still be operating from that stress response. And our cells can get stuck in that cell danger response. It, okay, it's lessened a bit, but I'm still operating from caution. And that's where I think we have to take a look at the less sexy things to take a look at and say, okay, but what's, what is our diet? Are we eating a healthy whole food diet? Because if you're not that's creating a stress response and let's fix that. How do you breathe at night? Are you, do you breathe appropriately? Well, I don't know. Well, maybe that's important because if you don't breathe well, and if you were in stress and you were breathing short and shallow and continue to breathe short and shallow, because that became the new pattern, that continues to tell the body, hey, I'm still in danger, still in danger, still in danger. So unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, Many of the things that we need to do to help people get healthy and get well and stay well aren't the sexy, shiny things. They aren't the organisms as much as they are, am I eating well? Am I sleeping well? Am I breathing well? Am I thinking well? Am I emotionally happy? Mm -hmm. Right. And so these things are like, whatever, they're not a big deal, but I can tell you absolute certainty that the people that come to see me that have been through five or 10 or 15 functional medicine practitioners and say, I've done it all. I've done molds. I've done heavy metals. I've done toxins. I've done this. Nothing works. Those are the people that typically haven't worked a lot on breathing and sleep and mindset. And even if they've done some of that work, they haven't done it to a point where they've really evaluated Am I, when I'm doing my breathing work and my meditation, am I changing my state? Because you could do breath work and not change your physiology at all. Right? I've done that. I have heart math. The thing, I thought the thing didn't work. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing works. I just wasn't focused on my breathing when I was doing it. I was doing it just for the five minutes so I could get back to work again. So we love these. We're all looking for the super supplement, the shiny object, the one thing that we can just eliminate, get rid of gluten and it'll fix everything. Uh, it's not that simple. When Kelly and I wrote the book, I, we had somebody read it who said, hey, uh, good, but where's the supplement solutions in the 
in each chapter. I'm like, I don't want supplement solutions in each chapter because what most people do, and if you've been in this space for a while, they read a book, get the supplement solutions, add the supplement. Yeah, I think it helps. Then they read the next book, read the supplement solutions, and add those supplements. Yeah, I think it helps. And they never subtract, they just keep adding. And then they show up in your office or my office and they're on 27, 28 different bottles of supplements. And they're like, what can you give me to fix me? Yep. And I'm usually my answer, and hopefully it's the same as yours is, uh, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take you off all the supplements. (laughs) I have to have these. These are helping me. Listen, if you need 27 bottles of supplements to feel this lousy, you don't need any of them. You're just greenwashing. Yeah your health. You're thinking that more supplements fixes stuff. And I'm a firm believer that less is more. Me too. And we probably don't need all that stuff. So hopefully that answers your question. I may have gotten off the tangent. Uh, No, no. And I mean, I can't agree more. And yes, I do take people off supplements a lot. And they at first look at me a little bit like I'm crazy. Like, well, what do you mean you're going to take me off? Like you said, and even if some supplements can be needed here and there, I really think that you need to work on things in stages. You wouldn't be killing off bacteria and supporting your adrenals and doing stuff for you know, your kidneys all at the same time. You kind of have to get each organ to kind of do its thing, you know, if we're going to start somewhere versus doing everything at once and, you know, throwing the kitchen sink at someone is rarely the answer, as you said, too. You know, and I think it's so important, like you said, it's the breathing, the eating, and you mentioned the thinking, which is definitely not sexy at all, but yet very, very, very important, you know? So what goes in between your ears (laughs) is probably bigger than really anything else. And how often do people really pay attention to that, right? Like we can have a hundred different thoughts within a second and studies show that out of those hundred thoughts, 90% of them are typically going to be negative, but do we even stop and pay attention and even realize that that's happening, right? I mean, that's step number one to know what is happening and then you can go and start to support that. Yeah, totally agree. Like I didn't give that as much credence in the beginning until I had some of my own health issues. But it's so often now when I see somebody who's been through a lot of practitioners that I'm usually saying, hey, we're missing a big piece here. And they're hoping I'm going to find the magical, mysterious bug. And I'm usually like, it's probably not a bug. If you have chronic infections, chronic SIBO, chronic everything, those things are continue to come back because the terrain is the same. You're not changing the environment. And so what is the biggest thing that's going to influence the environment? You've changed your diet. You've, you've tried exercising, but you can't. You've worked on sleep, but you struggle with that. You've killed so many different things. It's, there's, there couldn't be anything possibly left in the physiology. Like The thing that's often left is what's going on in your mind, whether it's conscious or subconscious that's having an impact. And you know, I was a little bit kind of later getting to this call than I wanted to, but the person I talked to right before that is a guy who's retired. He's got the world in his hands and we've done a lot with getting to feel better, function better on less thyroid medication. We've been titering it down and we just got some labs back from them and they're, they got worse all of a sudden. And I'm like, all right, what's going on? He's like, I don't know. I was traveling. I just came home and everything kind of got worse when I first got home. And I'm like, what else is going on? And he was, you know, we talked about a bunch of things. He's like, you know, I think a lot of it is emotional. I'm going through this big lawsuit and stuff and I was doing really poorly. And then we just found out we won a a verdict. And I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah. And I started, you know, it's about that time I started feeling better too. Right. So, but he's like, I know it's, he's like, I've been doing a lot of work and I know there's something emotional. I just don't know what it is, but I know a lot of this has to do with what goes on with my mind because he said, there's no real good explanation for the ebbs and flows other than it's mind and emotion. And when he's traveling and away from home, everything gets better. And then when he comes back to that home environment, it gets worse. It's not mold. All those things have been checked. I'm like, it's probably here. And, and it took a little bit, but he's he's there now where he's like, I know it's there. I just have to continue to work on that. Yeah. And you know, I think so often in our home, right, even if the situation is resolved, we still can have triggers, right? So some type of a piece of furniture or something that reminds us of whatever it was, or even a food that we may have been eating when we found out that something had happened. 
And then every time that we would eat that food or look at that piece of furniture or even see that person or hear that person's name, I mean, how often, you know, people go through, you know, a big fight or a divorce, right? And then like the person's name pops in in your inbox and you're like, like, you don't even know what they said. You haven't even read the email, right? But it's just seeing their name is very triggering. And so it's, it's just so important to look at that um, because those triggers could be in your environment. And it's just so interesting that you say like, oh, we looked for mold and some things because we typically think of triggers as physical triggers, not necessarily emotional triggers. That's absolutely true. So for people, I think most people that are listening to this right now are probably realizing that they are most likely in some type of a cell danger response as well, because they are experiencing all of the symptoms that we've talked about. So If they know that something is going on and they've looked at the physical stuff and they're working on some of the physical stuff, but they know that some of the other things have not been addressed, where do you recommend that people start? Because I know it's not sexy, but it's also, in addition, could also be overwhelming because there's just not as much guidance on this. I think even on Instagram, right? You see like, oh, H. pylori, take these supplements. You know, Yersinia, take these supplements. There isn't like, oh, you have thoughts in your mind. (laughs) Take And you know, I think what often happens, people say, oh, well, let me take a calming supplement, right? Like I can do phosphatidylserine or I can do GABA. This is going to help lower my cortisol. That will get me out of fight or flight. But will that really? Not really. Not long-term, right? And then there's this side effect that happens to those things. A, you're not addressing the real issue. You're just, you're just trying to suppress symptomatology with a different type of support. So initially when it comes to like emotional stress, I, I'm no therapist by any stretch of the imagination. Some might argue I need to see one, but I've been through my own stressors and traumas. We all have our story to tell, right? And I think really what it comes down to many times is if you need help from an emotional standpoint, finding tools to deal with it. And it took for me in my personal life, I had to go through some of the ebbs and flows of trying to figure out how to interpret it and how do I how do I deal with those things? And I think one of the most important things is, especially when it comes to emotional stress that we're aware of, especially if it's people or situations, is to keep in mind that those, especially the people, like I never, I haven't been divorced. I love, if my wife leaves me, I'm going with her. But if you got a divorce, you got in an argument or somebody makes you irritated or unhappy, what I always think we have to keep in mind is that person likely doesn't care or know how that situation is impacting you. You're reiterating that situation in your mind. And we're the biggest, it sounds mean, but we're the person who keeps bringing that situation back up. So we have to change our thought process around the situation. And if we can change the thought process around the thought situation, around the situation, then we can change our response to it. And there's techniques like the MAP method and other techniques that are out there to help you change that kind of internal conversation. I think the thing that really helped me figure that out one day was driving into work one day, big, bad traffic. Somebody was all, you know, cutting people off in and out and just, I almost got an accident, slammed on my brake and I'm so angry and so mad. I'm chasing them down. And I finally get up to him. I'm going to roll my window down. I'm going to say something. And it's this guy in this big old Mercedes Benz picking his nose. And I was like, oh my God, I've spent the last 10 or 15 minutes in a state of rage. And this guy doesn't know it and doesn't care, right? He's not even aware of the, of what he's doing. Am I going to allow that person to have dominion over my life, my mind, my health, my well-being? And for me, it sounds gross, but that was like a big turning moment in my life, as simple as that is. And oh my gosh, whatever, you know, relationships were problematic, parents, whatever, you, you go, they can be all the jerk they want, but that doesn't mean I have to take it right? It doesn't mean it has to ruin my life. So for people who really stress where there's a conscious and emotional, a stress response, I think it's really important to do. There's lots of techniques, DNRS and MAP method, meditation. There's lots of different things. You got to find the thing that works for you. But sometimes just if you're aware of what the situation is, changing that conversation in your mind and realizing it's me reinforcing how that person makes me feel. It's not that person because I'm not in communication with them. They're down the road, picking their nose. They don't even know what happened. And I think sometimes when you really get comfortable with that, man, life can be, gets a lot easier, less stressful. That doesn't mean bad things don't happen to people. I think that's what I call emotional fitness is we, you have to understand that good things and bad things are going to happen to you. 
It's not about the thing. It's about how we interpret it and, and use it. Some people have something negative happen to them and let it continue to destroy their life and define their life in a negative fashion and continue to live with it, carry it like a backpack on their back for the rest of their life. And for others, they go, okay, that's that stinks. That wasn't great. But what can I learn from that experience? And what can I do going forward so I can make life better as a result of that? Everybody's entitled to their pity party. But emotional fitness is where we need to get to. And I don't, I think really a lot of people are hurting in their emotional fitness. They're not very fit because everything that happens to them is a micro offense or a macro offense or it offends me. Well, guess what? That's life. But it only has to offend you if you continue to interpret it as a problem. If we just say, listen, wow, uh, I just got fired. That stinks. What can I do next? What, what should, why did I get fired? What do you think the result was that? Maybe that was a good experience. It allows me to go out into the environment and find another job that's maybe better or a new spouse or a new partner. And so I, I think for most people, they've got to use the, the stressors that come at them, understand that stress is going to happen, good and bad. Uh, neither one of them is actually good or bad. And that we need to use those, have your pity party, and then figure out how to use that as a tool to move forward in life versus being, you know, pulled back like an anchor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so much of it has to do with our limiting beliefs and things that we've imprinted um, from our parents at a young age when we're in theta and don't really have a logical mind. So looking at some of that could be really helpful too and really looking at where does this stem from, right? Because the stories we tell ourselves in our head that this person wronged me and all the things that you mentioned, right? You said it's not about them. It's it's mirroring you and something that is still there. But the good thing is that, and like you said, you want to find what works for you. And so there's so many different modalities as you mentioned, and things also like hypnosis and MDR and other belief work. And sometimes it's really a matter of trying on a couple of things, you know, maybe trying on therapy and trying on this and say, you know what, this helps me with this, but this doesn't. And everyone is different. And so it's okay um, to try a couple of different things. And it's not that one failed. It's just that you resonate with one more than another, or maybe you clear certain blocks in one type of modality, but then there's some other ones that are really deep seated that are left where another modality might be helpful. And so it's just, it's nice to know all the things that are out there from, you know, kind of the mental, emotional, uh, energetic perspective. Yeah. One of the tools I really like, and I, I, I don't get anything from it, but it, I, and I, I recommend it a lot to my patients is the Apollo Neuro device, which is a wearable, which is essentially putting vibration into the tissue. So if somebody's stressed, if they're having a hard time getting to sleep, they need focus and attention, they can get this wearable device. It's like a little wristband, right? You've probably seen it and you can put that on and it changes the brain, brain has a, has a lot to do with brainwave frequency. You're talking about theta and we talk about delta and theta, alpha, beta, high beta. We could use it more expensive technology like neurofeedback equipment to do some of this stuff. But this neuro, this Apollo neuro device can do a, do a lot of very similar type stuff, smaller price point person can wear it every day and utilize it. And, and that can be, I have a young, a young guy that we worked, did a lot of work with and, but he had severe anxiety, but we did a lot of work for him, but you know, he wasn't willing to do some of the other like therapy type stuff. It's just not his, you know, he's a young guy. I'm not doing that, but we got him this device. And sure enough, by wearing that device regularly and frequently, he was able to get a job interview, get a job, be successful, get re-socialized with his friends. And really, you know, what we were doing diet lifestyle wise was good, but the social anxiety had in that, and what was going on from a neurochemistry standpoint, we needed another tool to do that and he wasn't willing to go out and do those things, this was a tool that came in and really made a huge difference for this person. So I really, I, I really like that device. That's great to know. So for those that are not familiar, what is it called again? It's called the Apollo Neuro device. Okay. So is it sensing certain vibrations and then giving you, like shifting it? So is it essentially shifting your brainwave state or how does that work? Yeah. So it's using vibration. So it doesn't fix it on its own. Like you'd have to say, hey, I need to calm down. Right. So you put it on a calm setting. So it doesn't sense it. You put, I see. Okay. So it can't do it automatically. That would be more like neurofeedback would be better to do mm-hmm. that. But this is a low tech way to do it. So as a, as a good example, even for me, like I love speaking in front of groups and I was in Florida beginning of September, a large group of people, you know, but anytime you're going to go speak, even if you like doing it, your heart rate goes up a little bit. And usually I'm in the like 
50s to low 60s. And I looked at my data and I was like, I'm up into the 70s. So I pulled out the Apollo Neuro, put it on, set it for a calm setting. And within 30 minutes, I was getting on stage, check my heart rate, I'm back down to low 60s again. Now, you know, typically it would be ramping up a bit, but it was bringing it my heart rate right back down again. So pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great tool because it sounds like it's quick and it's easy. And not to say that that's a replacement necessarily for the other stuff, but as people are working on some of the other stuff, this could be a way to help them through that or to at least just get started with something. Yeah, absolutely. And then for breathing, which I know you mentioned is another really big thing. Do you have any resources that you like, any apps or any specific exercises? I mean, there's so much out there. And I think you know, everything is effective to some extent, but anything that you found to be just like really good? I, I'm a fan of heart math. So I'm a fan of mouth taping, nose taping, and heart math. Okay. Uh, I recommend Buteco breathing. I think that's, uh, there's some good science behind that. I mean, there's Wim Hof, there's a bunch of things, but the problem with breathing is that you can do it and it not change your state. I've got a lot of patients that I do breathing exercises and I'm like, okay, so let's check your heart rate and your heart rate variability pre and post. And it's no different. And that's where heart math, I think is really good. Heart math is a device. You, it's a little sensor. You put it on your ear. It's measuring your heart rate and your heart rate variability. And then it guides you through breathing. It, you don't score well unless you're actually changing the metrics, right? And so this is where, when I got it, somebody recommended it to me about a decade or so ago. They said, you probably should get this. And I, I tried using it. I do it like five, 10 minutes a day. And I thought it was stupid because I couldn't get the color scheme right to stay that way. And I said to my friend, you know, it doesn't work. He's like, what do you mean it doesn't work? He's like, I can't get it to do what I wanted to. So obviously it doesn't work. And he said, what are you thinking about when you're doing it? I'm like, I'm thinking about all the stuff I got to do, you know? <laughs> He's like, well, that's why it doesn't work. You need to shut your, just focus on the circle. Just focus on the breath. That's the only thing. And I'm like, I got stuff to do. And he's like, right, you have stuff to do. That's why you need to do this. And when I really started focusing just on the breathing and the stupid little circle on there, then it started to work. And I was like, oh, and now my heart rate, heart rate variability it actually changed those things. And so you may do something, but it doesn't change the physiology. Yes. Could I stretch, but it doesn't change my flexibility. Yes. Could I lift, but it doesn't make me stronger. Yeah. Could I do breath work and it really doesn't calm my sympathetic nervous system? Absolutely. And so that's why I really like that as a tool because it gives you all immediate feedback as to whether you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. no, that makes sense. Because otherwise it's kind of saying like, yeah, I'm going to meditate for 20 minutes and you just sit in a room for 20 minutes. So yeah, you sat, but if you're not meditating and just sitting, it's not the same thing. So yeah. Right. You know, I think it's it's really that that biochemistry is affected by that because I think so often we think of them as two different things, right? That it's like, okay, I have my biochemistry And I have my supplements and this and that. And then I have my my body stuff. And so I do my body to help with my mind. And I do my biochemistry up with that. But it's all in the same. Like what you do with your mind is going to then help your biochemistry in all the ways that you've really eloquently explained and kind of getting out of that cell danger response. So I think it's just really helpful for people to hear that and understand that. Let me, if I can, I'll I'll add one thing that maybe... People have seen these commercials of people singing and dancing on TV saying this medication lowers my A1C, right? You've heard it. It's a catchy little jingle, right? Yeah. And it's really a hot drug right now. It's these things called GLP-1 agonists that help shut down the liver from making glucose, reduce some of the glucose absorption, and stimulate insulin response. So everybody thinks it's great. Hey, this can help you lose weight because there's less blood sugar. It regulates your hemoglobin A1C, helps to be a diabetic. Right. And so the question that nobody maybe is asking is why is there GI GLP1 diminished to begin with? Maybe we should ask that question. But to go back to what we were talking about with stress, what we're not talking about isn't the GLP1 that's generated in the in the gut, but the GLP1 that's generated in your brain. When you're stressed, you increase brain GLP1. And when you increase brain GLP-1, that increases your sympathetic nervous system. 
And when you increase your sympathetic nervous system, that increases your fight or flight response and it decreases your parasympathetic nervous system. And the change in the sympathetic nervous system and the reduction of parasympathetics changes your gut physiology, reduce digestive capacity, it leads to dysbiosis, which the change in the gut physiology leads to de decreased GLP-1 to begin with. And that same stress response is going to reduce the conversion of T4 to T3 in the periphery, but increase it in the brain. And if I reduce the T4 to T3, in the periphery, I reduce glucose absorption. I get glucose resistance or what everybody calls insulin resistance or prediabetes or diabetes. And so why I say all that is we have these sexy, fun-loving commercials that are on there that sound great, but we just got done talking about how stress can have an impact. And you think about, well, what's the big deal? I'm not stressed or whatever, or how big a deal could it be? But emotional stress increases sympathetic nervous system, and it creates dysfunction in your GI tract that leads to blood glucose dysregulation that creates weight gain and diabetes, two of the biggest healthcare conditions impacting this country. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get enough credit. And everybody says, well, I'll just stress. I'll take an anti-anxiety medication. That doesn't fix it. It's a Band-Aid and it too will have its side effects in time. Absolutely. And I think for our thyroid hormone to really be used, as you said, in the way that we want it to be used, this is very important to address. And especially for those who have levels that look okay, but yet they're not feeling okay, this is where we want to look. Now, Dr. Eric, this has been so helpful and so enlightening. And there's so much more information in your book, The Thyroid Debacle. And for those that want to connect with you or contact you, where can they find you? So my website is rejuvagencenter.com. I'm on Instagram, I guess is where I put stuff out is on Instagram is Dr. Eric, Bal I think it's Dr. Eric or Dr. Eric Balcavage. I don't even remember. I don't go on it too often, but, and then I have a, a podcast, Thyroid Answers podcast, and it's coming out, comes out about every two weeks. And then on YouTube, I'd have my Thyroid Thursday videos. I do it usually about, yeah, about 10 minute, like educational type videos to help people understand stuff. I don't typically do the, here's the three things you do to improve your your whatever. I'm usually trying to help somebody understand, here's a blood panel, here's how, how to interpret it. Here's what somebody said, here's why that's accurate and here's why it works, or here's what somebody said and here's why that's not true and here's the real mechanism. Because I'm really trying to not give this sexy, easy, flashy things, but really help somebody understand how their chemistry works. Well, thank you so much for being here and helping everyone understand the cell danger response and how important it is. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to chatting with you soon. Thanks for having me. Come on. As you can see, there's so much when it comes to thyroid hormones. And it's not just about having enough, but also about how our cells can actually accept and use those thyroid hormones. After reviewing Molly's labs in detail, I saw that she was the unavailable thyroid type. So we worked in depth on that by balancing her other hormones and supporting everything so that her free hormones were more available to her cells. Additionally, we also had to support the stress response. Downregulating the nervous system makes such a difference in everything. And most people don't realize that it also affects how our cells are going to accept our hormones. This is actually one of the big reasons why I created my Clear Your Thyroid Blocks program. Because here's the thing, our thoughts create things. Thoughts aren't just things that circle around in our head. Each thought has a frequency. And in this world where everything is energy, the frequency really matters because it creates our reality. When we're not mindful of what is happening in our heads, we end up with more stress, which increases our stress hormone cortisol. And we all know, I don't need to lecture you on this, stress is a huge trigger for thyroid issues, Hashimoto's, and really any disease, right? And that's because, as we were talking about in the interview, cortisol is what increases inflammation and that can increase disease. And cortisol is also very addictive, which is why we can't seem to get away from it. We want more of it and often unknowingly seek out situations that will actually create more. And what I want us to keep in mind is that in this life, we don't get what we want. We don't even get what we deserve. We get what we are. And that all goes back 
to resonance, that frequency that we put out and our thoughts and beliefs create that frequency, but you are in control to change it. And the quickest way to change it is to clear what is not serving you. And that's why I think it's so essential that we notice and then subsequently stop that negative self-talk. And by the way, when I say self-talk, it's not just saying something to yourself that's negative, like, I don't like the way my skin looks today. That's part of it. But to me, negative self-talk is any and all thoughts that have any type of negative vibration or frequency. And that includes things like worry and shame and guilt, frustration and anger. And I am not saying that we shouldn't feel our emotions. Not at all. We should. And after feeling them, ask, how is this serving me? And if it is not serving you in any way in the long term, then that is where we ideally in that moment want to see that it's not serving us and clear them and then replace them with what is going to serve you. And this is something that we worked on with Molly and something that we can work on together as well. This is actually just a small window into what I do in clearing your thyroid blocks. There's three hours of content and we work on the emotional and the energetic level to find, clear, and replace the most common blocks and beliefs that I see in those with thyroid issues and autoimmunity. Because as I always say, biochemistry is so important, but there is more to the puzzle. Our emotions, our thoughts, our beliefs, they're another big piece. And if they're not addressed, they can perpetuate a lot of your thyroid issues. And so in clearing your thyroid blocks, we do the process together. We clear some of the main blocks. And then additionally, I also teach you exactly how you could do it on your own for any thought or pattern or belief or issue that comes up for you going forward. So you really are empowered to do this work on your own. And it's so easy. And it doesn't require changing your diet or taking any extra supplements, which is always a plus. You could see much more information at thyroidmysterysolve.com forward slash thyroid blocks. As Molly and I worked on her unavailable thyroid type by supporting her with the right nutrients for her, and then also doing all of the stress support and doing a lot of the clearings and helping her to manage that negative self-talk she saw a lot of changes. Her energy improved, her brain fog dissipated, and she really started to feel more quote unquote normal, as she says, kind of like her old self, which is what she really, really wanted. And of course, we were both super excited. If Molly sounds like someone you know, can you please share this episode with them? And please be sure that you are subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. And as always, when it comes to your health issues, please, please do not give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.